You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. All right, let's get our Bibles out this morning. Open them up to uh, Mark chapter 8 as we uh, begin our Easter series, The Season's Reason. And today we want to talk about the need. We want to talk about the need. The reality in our society is our society needs a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ, and He is the season's reason. And today we focus on that idea of the need. You know, I watch a TV a channel that tends to uh, play a commercial over and over and over again. And the, the commercial is about Wayfair. Uh, Wayfair is a company I'd never even heard of until a few years ago. And, and now I hear about it all the time. And their little jingle goes like there, Wayfair, um, you got just what I need. Wayfair, you got just what I need. I was going to sing it and do the little dance, but that would be offensive to you, so I'm not going to do that. Wayfair, you got just what I need. Uh, my wife, has like she gets ticked off every time she hears it because what's that word need? It's not what I need. They're flaunting all this stuff that I want, not what I need. So now when the commercial comes on, she's like, Wayfair, it's just what I want. And, you know, she just throws it out there. I'm like, okay, honey, I get the message. I get the message. And um, she's got my grandchildren doing it as well. Because the reality is, most of the stuff they have, you don't need. Most of it, it's just stuff that you, you want, right? What do we really need? Well, I really need the roof over my head. I really need food in my stomach. I really need clothes on my back. Everything after that is what I want, but we live in a society that's filled with that, what I want stuff, and it takes over so much of our priorities in the world for sure. But even for us as believers, we get, we get caught up in that. I, I need a new, I got to have the newest iPhone. I, I need a new car. I need a new house. I, I need a new job. I need a new friend. And, and, and so often, it's not what I need. It's all about our convenience. It's all about what we want. We need a roof over our head. We need food in our stomach, and we need clothes on our back. Humanly, that's what we need. But there's an even greater need that we have, and it's the reason for Easter. It's the reason Jesus Christ came, and that is uh, we need a Savior. And he was sent, and he came, and we celebrate and remember it at Easter because we were hopeless people, and God sent his son to give us hope. So we want to study that out of Mark chapter 8 today. Let's stand together. We want to honor God as we read from his word, and I'm going to start at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling, to the, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is your word that we hold in our hands, and you have preserved it for us. And 
What's accomplished in these few verses today is amazing. It is awesome in your working, in your caring, in your calling on our lives. And so, Lord, as we uh, hear from your word today, would you uh, give us ears to carefully listen to what you're saying? Would you give us minds, God, that we would be able to comprehend it? And then, God, would you give us hearts, hearts to be different, hearts to be changed, hearts to live out for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do this work for your fame and your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can take your seats. Well, Jesus starts out in this text with uh, these words, and he began to teach them. He began to teach them. Where are we on the timeline of Jesus Christ's ministry? Well, we are about one year, give or take a couple months, but we are about one year out from the cross. Jesus' public ministry has been going on for a couple of years now, and we're about one year away from Christ hanging on the cross. And there's a transition that happened in his teaching as he was going along. Up until now in the teaching of Christ, his suffering and what he was going to go through was more hinted at, but, but now it becomes very direct. The followers that were with him, they were looking for an earthly king. But Jesus is about to turn that all on its head for them. The implications are going to be very different at the end of this day than what they saw and what they wondered about as they were following him. The transition happens um, in a short shift in words that changed their world, that rocked their thinking. See, uh, we just sang in the song, and, and, and set your heart upon the cross. That's what Jesus Christ is doing now. All of it was in preparation for it, but now his focus is going to be on going to Jerusalem. His focus is going to be going to the cross. His focus is going to be to accomplish what needed to be accomplished so that we could have salvation in Jesus Christ. And he starts it in this text. He talks about it again in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 50. He talks about it again in Mark chapter 10, verses 38 uh, to 45. He began... To teach them. He begins to teach them about his crucifixion. He begins to teach them about what is coming. The first point of our message is clarity about the crucifixion. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, they were unprepared for this. The teaching that is coming, they were unprepared for. They weren't looking for a Messiah who was going to die. Messiahs don't come to die. Messiahs come to deliver people. Messiahs don't come in a, in a position of weakness. Messiahs are to come in a place of strength. And you have to imagine as they're hearing this, their minds are like, no! You're supposed to come and be the king. You're supposed to come and make our lives better. You're supposed to come and deliver us from all this. And what is this message that you're giving to us? And here's what Jesus said. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. What an unbelievable shock. A suffering Messiah a position of weakness, not of strength. They were looking for a Messiah who would come crashing into history and remake the world. And Jesus says, I must suffer. I must suffer. 
History would not be conquered like they thought it would be conquered. The world order would not be changed. Their lives were not going to get easier. Jesus said, I must suffer. And then he said, I must be rejected. I must suffer and I must be rejected. And that was prophesied back in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The text talks about how Jesus would be rejected by the religious leaders. They were all going to turn on him in in a fake kind of court trials that would happen right before he goes to the cross and the religious leaders and the political leaders would, uh, they would reject him. His own family was trying to figure out if he's crazy or not, and, and they reject him. The world would reject him. For God so loved the world he gave his son, and so the whole world would reject him. But hey, here's the reality. The reality is we all rejected Jesus Christ. We all did. Everybody who was there that day rejected Jesus Christ, and until you come to the place of trusting Christ as your Savior, you're in rejection of who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished for him. And so when Jesus says, I must suffer and be rejected, maybe you can remember the rejection you had for him and the way you talked about Christ and the way you treated him. And I must suffer and I must be rejected. And then he says, I must be killed. I must be killed. See, we have the advantage of sitting on the other side of the cross. Uh, We have the advantage of uh, holding God's word in our hands, and we can read it, and we know the rest of this story. Um, But they didn't, and they're sitting looking at this Messiah who was supposed to be their deliverer, and he's saying, I'm going to suffer. No, Lord. I'm going to reject it. No, Lord. And certainly not by us, Lord. And I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be killed. Jesus tells us in a little, in a couple of verses down about the kind of killing he was going to have because he points the picture for us about taking up our cross. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer on a cross. I'm going to die on a cross. And the people who heard the word that day, they understood the shame of that. They, they had seen crucifixions. They had watched people be nailed to crosses. They had heard the screaming and the crying. They had watched as people hung on a cross and pushed up to try and get a breath until there was no pushing left and the breath was finally gone. And the one who was supposed to be the great Messiah, who was supposed to be the great deliverer, who was supposed to be the great king, is now giving them a message that doesn't make any sense to them because Jesus wasn't looking to solve their problem for today. Jesus was understanding, and what he was telling them was to solve their problem for eternity. I will suffer, I will be rejected, I will be killed. And there's a glimmer of hope, Hiller, and I will rise again. I will rise again. See, that verse is an amazing picture of the gospel. It's an amazing picture of what Jesus Christ did for us. I must suffer because you can't suffer this. I must suffer because your suffering can't accomplish what needs to be accomplished. I must suffer. And in doing so, I will be rejected and I will die for you. I will die so you can have life and you can have it abundantly. 
But I will rise again as the proof that I am who I said I was and I did what I said I would do so that we could have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Our, our possibility of, of getting reconciled with God is this. It is zero without the work of Jesus Christ. But because of the work of Jesus Christ, we can have hope and we can have eternal life. And so the Lord Jesus was seeing the rest of the story, what he was telling them was such a greater victory for them than they could even imagine. But they're struggling they're trying to figure it all out. They're trying to put the pieces together. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming to take care of what you couldn't take care of so you could have eternal life. And as we go on in Scripture, we learn that that was done and all we have to do is believe that work and trust what Christ did for us and receive it for ourselves and, and the righteousness of Christ that's put on us and, and our sin was all put on him and it's all a transaction by faith alone in Christ alone. I believe most of the people in the room have made that decision, but there are some in the room who haven't, and that's the claim of Easter. That's what this whole thing is about. It's about why Jesus came and what he did and what he accomplished so you could have life by believing in him. If you've never trusted Christ, this is the day. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did, and you'll be saved. You'll be saved. We have Christ coming and giving clarity as to about what he's going to do. We have clarity about the crucifixion. But then immediately we have this confrontation of pride and selfishness. We see it in verses 32 and 33. And he said this plainly. Teaches them it's plain out so they can understand it. And Peter. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Wow. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now let's give Peter a little bit of um, space here. Let's understand what's going on. Peter is looking for a ruling king, not a suffering savior. Peter is looking for deliverance, not for servanthood. Uh, Peter wanted human success, not failure. And all of this is going against everything he was hoping for as he's following this king. This one who's going to be the Messiah. And so he takes it upon himself to rebuke Jesus. Now just think about that for a minute, right? But that's easy for us because we're on the other side. We look and we see it. And Peter is um, Peter's a little ticked about the whole thing. He's like, no, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I thought was going to happen. Because Peter's so focused on the now, and he doesn't understand what Christ is about to do. He's going to take care of his eternity. You know, it's interesting, just a couple verses earlier in Romans, excuse me, in Mark chapter 8, um, Jesus um, says this, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. In chapter 8 and verse 29, Peter's speaking truth from God. But in our verses now, he's speaking lies that come from Satan. Jesus goes on after what he said in chapter 8, verse 29. says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in, in heaven... In verse 33, it says, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So it says he turned and he sees the disciples. So they're watching all of this. They're seeing Jesus go, uh, Peter go, Jesus, come on over here. Come on over here. Like, are you nuts? There's no way that's what's going to happen. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And he's rebuking him. 
It says that Jesus looks and he sees the disciples there. And there are really two schools of thought of why that sentence is in your Bible. Neither of them change the outcome at all, but it's interesting to think about. One of the schools of thought says because what Peter was saying was exactly what they were thinking. Right? They're, they're all trying to figure this out too. But Peter, as we know, he was the mouthpiece for the group. He's the guy who spoke up, often didn't think first. And, and so he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. But the reality is, Jesus looks over and he goes, mm, they're all thinking exactly the same thing. And so the rebuke for Peter is because of that. Or, or the other school of thought would say that, no, Peter's rebuking him. He's so far out of line. And he just wanted to make sure that they don't get confused in all of this. The Bible doesn't really say, but it's interesting that it does say that at Jesus turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is not saying that Peter is Satan. Saying, Peter, your thoughts and your words, they don't line up with who I am. They don't line up with the truth. And he needed to be rebuked. He needed to be corrected. Just a few sentences earlier, Peter is confessing Jesus as the Messiah. And Christ compliments him. And, but when told about his impending suffering, Peter feels it's right to tell Jesus that he's wrong. And what he's, not, what he's saying is not lining up with what God has in mind, what God's plan is, what God's word even said, and, and he needed to be rebuked. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter wasn't humbly submitted to what would God have for us? What does God want for us? Peter was wrapped up in his feelings and his conscience and his, his own expectations and his own plans and his own desires and maybe his own position and all of those things. And, and he felt it necessary to be the one to rebuke, rebuke Jesus. And in doing so, he becomes an instrument of Satan. He's not Satan. He's not satanic. But what he's saying is out of line with what God is about to do. And, and he offends Jesus and and Jesus rebukes him. My mind went to Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things of the earth. And they were so looking forward to an earthly Messiah when a different plan came, when a different message was laid out. They, they couldn't get their heads around it. And I understand it. I understand it because I know the rest of the story. But pride and selfishness and his agenda for Peter got in the way of what Christ was about to do. And, and so there's this confrontation and the Lord puts, it in his, puts him in his place, as it were. And then the Lord moves right on to uh, some more teaching. So he finishes that rebuke and, and then he comes to verse 34 and, and here's what it says. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And right out of this confrontation, Jesus immediately moves to a, a call to their discipleship, a call to what they're supposed to do, a call to how they're supposed to respond to this teaching that he's doing. All that I'm teaching you about what's going to happen to me, there are implications of that who are the followers of, of me, Jesus is saying. And it's a call uh, to discipleship. Now look how he starts the verse. And calling the crowd to him, 
And calling the crowd to him, it's kind of like, okay, now listen up. You have to imagine, they're watching all of this go on. They're watching a Peter pulling Jesus out and rebuking him. They're watching the rebuke that now happens. And they're probably all got their heads down. They're twiddling their thumbs. They're looking around. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. And Jesus, okay, let's get this back on track as to where it's going to go. And so he calls them in. He calls them in. He says, now listen, listen. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. Jesus calls them to a decision. Let him. It makes it clear that there's things that we are due, that we are called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. There are three of them in the text. Let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and let him follow me. If it wasn't uncomfortable enough that Jesus is telling them, the way you thought it was going to work out isn't the way it's going to work out, but it's going to be way better for you in the end. Now he said, now here's the calling on your life. And the calling on your life is similar. There's like expectations, there's a commitment. Now, I want to make sure we get this clear. This is not how you get to Jesus. This is not about how you get saved. That was done through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and putting our trust in him and our faith in him and walking because of what Christ has done. But now, as his disciple, here's what Jesus calls us to. Here's what he calls us to. The first thing he says is, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. You know, denying yourself is not... um, Stop the eating bad food so you can be a healthier person. Denying yourself is not, I'm going to work out more so that I can be bulked up. That's self-denial. That's just that you do a thing for a little while, it's a good idea, and you do it. Warren Wearsby, I made this sentence, Warren Wearsby was a great preacher of a previous generation. Here's what he said, it's up on the screen for you. Um, Denying self is not the same as self-denial. We practice self-denial when for a good purpose, we occasionally give up things or activities. We deny self when we surrender ourselves to Christ and determine to obey his will. Jesus isn't asking us just to give up something for a little while. He's saying, I want you to deny yourself. I'll read it again. Denying self is not the same as self-denial. We practice self-denial when for a good purpose, we occasionally give up things or an activity. But we deny self when we surrender ourselves to Christ and to t- determine to obey his will. Denying self means to live as an other-centered, more importantly, as a Christ-centered person instead of a me-centered person. And that's what Christ is calling them to. Lord's painted this picture. This is what I'm going to do for you. This is what I'm going to accomplish for you. Now, as my disciples, as my followers, here's the first thing. Give up yourself. Give up yourself. And get your focus on me. Get your focus on what I am accomplishing. Peter learned this. He, he laid it out later on in his life in 1 Peter 2 about abstaining from fleshly lusts and so on and no longer living like the rest of the world. Why? Because we denied ourselves. We're living for Jesus Christ now. Paul talked about denying self-righteousness and that his boast was not in who he was. His, his boast was in the Lord. And the Lord, as he's laying this out for them, he says, let him deny himself And then he says, let him take up his cross. Let him take up his cross. And this was a picture that 
the followers of Jesus Christ, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. It might even cost you your life. You need to be willing to take up your cross. The cross is not some sweet little cute little symbol or ceremony or tradition. And The cross is not about feelings. The cross has been sanitized in our culture to such a point that we've, we've lost the gravity of what it is. The cross was gross. The cross was ugly. The cross was difficult. The cross was painful. And, and, and Jesus said, you want to be my disciple? Deny yourself and take up your cross. I take up your cross daily, one of the texts says. And, and so there's a picture here. It's obviously, it's a metaphor because you can't take up your cross daily, right? If you're literally taking up your cross, you take it up once because by the end of the day, you're dead, right? So there's a picture here for us, for us to understand that there's a cost for us, and, but we are willing to take that cost and maybe the suffering that would need to come along with it. It's not some sanitized picture or a symbol or a... And in saying that, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a chain with a cross on it. Some people say you shouldn't do that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we need to understand what the cross was. The cross that Jesus already said, that's what I'm going to do for you so you can be saved. As a follower of me, you need to be willing to take up your cross, whatever it is, and you need to follow me. Uh, Martin Luther said this. Here's another quote up on the screen for you. He said, um, every Christian must do somewhat more than those monks that made themselves wooden crosses and carried them on their backs continually, making all the world laugh at them. Here he says. So what was happening was there were monks that were out there and what they did was they made these crosses and they carried them around. They carried them around. That was their take up their cross daily. And all it accomplished was the world laughed at them. Because um, it wasn't really what it wasn't really what they were supposed to be doing. Um, we take up our cross daily means we stand for Christ even when we're, here's some R words for you, even when we're ridiculed. That speaks of being mocked for our faith in Jesus Christ. Even if we're reviled, it means spoken evil of or excluded because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Or even when reproached, it means to express disapproval or disappointment. Take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross. Here's what Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 16, understanding how far he's come from where he was on this day. In 1 Peter 4, he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We actually could rejoice in the suffering of Jesus Christ. Because we're not looking for a Messiah who could solve our problem today, although he is the answer to everything we need for today. But we're looking for the Messiah who solved eternity's problem so we could have life and we could have abundantly and we could be with him forever. Let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and, and let him follow me. To follow me means to, to become like him. The teachers of that day, that's what they called them, teacher, teacher. They, the, the students would follow the teacher around. And, uh, and so when Jesus says, follow me, that's the picture that's going on here. Follow me and, and watch what I do. And, and so you become like him. You see what he does. You see how he acts. You, you do what he says. If you have kids, you've seen this. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not so good. But you see, they catch the stuff that you do. 
more caught than taught, that whole concept. And then so they would follow Jesus around, follow me. And they would see how he would handle things. They would see how he would do things. And, and then they would do those things. Follow me means become like him. Do what he says. Walk in his footsteps, even, even if there's a great cost. Again, Peter's the focus of uh, this story outside of Jesus Christ. And we see how Peter learned this in 1 Peter 2, uh, 21 to 25. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. There's a great need and Christ gives clarity about the crucifixion. He confronts the pride that is in Peter and the pride that creeps into all of our lives and he calls them to discipleship and then in this calling of discipleship, he tells them, consider the implications. Consider the implications of what I'm calling you to and there are really four things that we find in the uh, next four verses in this call in this call to discipleship, four implications. And here's the first one. Look at it in verse 35. For whoever would save his life, you want to be a disciple, for whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's a paradoxical statement. There's two of them here. Two paradoxical statements. So what's a paradox? Just in case you don't know. A paradox is defined as a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded and true. Paradoxes you may have heard are uh, the more you try to impress people, the less impressed they'll be. Bit of a paradox. The more you fail, the more likely you are to succeed. Paradox. The more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. Those are paradoxes. Well, Jesus lays out two in this verse. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Well, how does that make any sense? You mean, how do I save my, if I save my life, I'll lose it. If you live for this world and all that you can have, you're going to lose your life. You might have it now. It might all look great right now. And you're thinking, I've got it all figured out. And I'm saving my life. And, and you will lose it. But him who loses his life right now, the one who denies himself, the one who uh, takes up his cross, the one who follows me, the one who says it's not about the now, it's about the forever, he who loses his life, Jesus says, you'll save it. There's a value proposition going on here. Do I want it now? And I won't have it for eternity? Or do I want it for eternity? And I'm willing to deny it now. Implication number one. Here's implication number two. We see it in verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. The principle is close. It's a similar idea. I, 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 I go after it all now, but then it's gone. 
I was struck by this. I found this uh, little story, this quote, and it uh, really struck home with me because this year in September, I reached the big 6-0. I, I find myself talking about that a lot these days. It's, uh, maybe it's just I'm partly thankful that I'm still alive. I realize that's part of it too, but I'm going to be 60 this year, and that's why this story uh, struck home to me. It goes like this. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If you gain the whole world, how long do you think you could hold it? Now, someone said something to me the other day that absolutely astounded me. I'd never thought of it that way. And it just really blew my mind. This fellow said, I just celebrated my 60th birthday, which means I have lived 1% of the time since Adam. Yeah, I started to feel a little just thinking about that. Man, that just shocked me to realize I've almost lived 1% of history. In the time of history since Adam. What a shocking thought. So if you gained the whole world, how long do you think you could hold it? How long could you enjoy it? A hundred years? Do you think you're going to live to be a hundred years old? Do you think by the time you're 98, you'll still be enjoying it? You see, the Lord is talking about eternity now. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his soul? That's eternal. The gaining of the world is only for a short time. Implication number two, what does it profit a man if he gets it all? I got the big house, I got the big car, I got the great family, I've got it. And you lose your soul. Let a man deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here's implication number three. Verse 37. For what can a man give in return for his soul. You know, it's possible to sell your soul, as it were. And people are doing it all the time in our world. And sometimes we get caught up in it. And we need to be so careful we don't get caught up in it. But I sell my soul by how? Because the things I go after in the now. Well, what would some of those things be? Well, one of those things would be fame. We see it in the world all the time. Uh, people want to be in the news. They want to be up front. They want to be in the lights. They want everybody talking about them. And, and their whole life is about right now. And so when the text says... But what can a man give in return for his soul? What you want in fame right now. Now, you may not be a superstar. You might not be a rock star. You may not be a sports uh, hero. You might not be a... But, but you can get caught up in this too. I, I want people to see me in a certain way. I want to be about me. Fame. Here's another one. When you give up, when you give up for your soul, power. I want to be in charge. I want lots of people underneath me. I want to be in control. And in doing so, your eyes aren't fixed on Jesus Christ. In doing so, you're about what you want and you're selling your soul for power. Or uh, maybe this one, for money. For money. I'm all about the job. I'm all about getting ahead. I'm all about having more in the bank. I'm all about more resources. I'm all about more stuff. I'm all about, and, and you're selling your soul for the now for money or for stuff. Or you're selling your soul for pleasure. And the king of your life is pleasure. Pleasure. 
And not necessarily always sinful pleasure, but pleasures of this world are the thing that rule you and, and you want those things. They're more important to you than your walk with Jesus Christ. But even worse, the pleasure that in a moment's passions, life is destroyed. Marriages are ruined and families are crushed. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Implication number four is found in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy Angels. I love it that Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of what Christ has done for me. I am not ashamed to be called a follower of Christ. Do you find yourself ashamed of that sometimes? Maybe if somebody asks you, well, what did you do yesterday morning? Tomorrow you get to work. Well, I went out in the morning, went out with the family. Where'd you go? Well, we just went out, we just had some family time. And you wouldn't tell them you were in church if your life depended on it. Because you're ashamed. Are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? When somebody gives you an opportunity, they open a door for you to talk about Jesus and the salvation you have. You don't take the opportunity because you're ashamed. See, the call of discipleship on our lives because of the work of Jesus Christ is a big call. And so Jesus lays out some implications. And the last one he lays out for them is, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ. God, help us all to be more bold about Christ, not obnoxious about Jesus Christ. You've met all those people. But to be bold about Jesus Christ to let people know what you stand for and who you are and why you are. Believe me, it's getting more and more difficult every day because the world system turns on us. Why would we be surprised about that? But I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power. It's the power. The followers of Christ weren't ashamed of him. John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world out there foretelling about Christ's coming and his voice was strong. I am not ashamed. Nicodemus is saying, you are a teacher who comes from God. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Doubting Thomas, who struggled in all of this. He sees Jesus Christ and he says, my Lord and my God. John said, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. Paul, after the resurrection of Christ, after he comes to Christ, says, the blessed and only king of kings and Lord of lords, they weren't ashamed of their savior, Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of my savior. I'm not ashamed of work that was done on Easter so I could have eternal life. I want people to know what it is about me that makes me a next world person and not a focused on this world kind of person. They weren't ashamed. They weren't ashamed of Jesus. They weren't ashamed of what he taught. Jesus taught that he was the only way to salvation. There's a way that seems right to man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. 
Don't be ashamed of that message. It's the truth of God's word. It's the truth that mankind needs to hear. We understand that most people are going to reject that message. The way to hell is broad and many who find it. The way to heaven is narrow and few there be that find it. But God has given us the message and the message from Jesus Christ is I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus taught he was the only way. Jesus taught he would, that only a few would find it. Not many would be saved. And Jesus um, taught about purity and marriage and things that are very unpopular in our society today, but they were the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, so what? So what? The season's reason. Jesus changes the focus because we need a savior. Because we are hopeless and helpless and the only way we can be saved is through the work of Christ. And so this focus of him moving now towards I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to die was so that they could understand the work he was going to do is actually far greater than what they ever could have imagined because of the need. And then he calls you and I to discipleship. Set aside your arrogance, set aside your pride, set aside your expectations, and put your trust in Jesus Christ. And as a follower of Christ, deny yourself. It's not about me, Lord, it's about you. Take up your cross every day, willing whatever it takes, and follow me, being like Jesus Christ. Because the implications are huge. The implications are huge. God calls us to these things so that we can be followers of Christ who live in obedience and walk in obedience and to walk confidently, not ashamed of the one who paid for our salvation. Walk confidently, not ashamed because he redeems us. Walk confidently because Jesus Christ right now, for every follower of Jesus Christ, intercedes on your behalf before God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming again in glory. And those who follow him on this earth will be seen as being rebellious, will be seen as being counterculture, will be seen as being a lot of things, but let us be seen as people who are following Jesus Christ the Lord, whatever it takes, because he did whatever it took so we could have life with him. What a great hope we have. The season's reason, Christ came because you had a need he met the need. He is our Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today and the challenge of it. Father, not an easy word, but a true word. Jesus took them from their understanding of what he was and why he had come and who he would be to why he really had come and what he would really accomplish for them because of the need. And then, Lord, he, um, he calls on us to follow. Because, Lord, in our salvation, we owe you everything. And what we do doesn't get us saved. We do because we're saved. Teach us, Lord, to walk aright. For the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.